Good evening, everyone. Welcome to, gosh, what is it now, the fifth installment of Max and Doyle talking about the great works of the Western tradition. Max, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing, Doyle? I'm good. I'm good. I think the, the plays that we read for this time, Sophocles, uh, the Theban plays, so that's Oedipus Rex, Oedipus at Colonus, and Antigone. Um, they were a real trip. Yeah, I think uh, Sophocles is one of the, is, in my opinion, the best writer we've read. Hmm. Uh, poetically, he's very eloquent and uh, philosophical in a way that I don't think any of the previous writers were. But I see in Sophocles, uh, from the Iliad to Sophocles, uh, a kind of progression in writing style. Yeah, well, it's, it seems, um, if nothing else, there's a, a respect for brevity that Sophocles has that he kind of even takes the Aeschylean plays and shortens them to, yeah. to really pack, a, pack in a huge message and a, a whole bunch of the human condition into a pretty small window of, of, of lines, really. Indeed, there's the... There's so much captured by so little in Sophocles. And I think that makes that makes the works a lot more powerful. Um, but would you mind giving a quick summary to start of sort of where we what we read? Sure. Um, yes. I, I read the Fagel's translation again and mm -hmm. uh, you told me that they the chronological order of the plays is actually backwards. Yeah, so um, so as we kind of talked about last time, the, the tragedies on the whole would have been presented in trilogies, um, and not, not precisely trilogies. There would have been a trilogy of tragedies then capped off by a comedy over the course of three days at a festival at the beginning of spring um, called the City Dionysia. And <clears throat> of, of all of those trilogies that, that occurred over... You know, I don't know how many how how many years they did that. Probably hundreds. You know, um, only one complete trilogy survives, and that's the one we read last time, and that's the the Oresteia. Um, none of the Seder plays survive, except I think very recently we uncovered some substantial fragments of one of Aeschylus's comedies from that they were called the Seder plays, um, and I I don't really know anything about that work, but I kind of gleaned that I think from the introduction to the the Sophocles play that plays that we read. So anyway, all three of these plays um, are not they're not part of the same trilogy. They're one play from three different trilogies. So we're missing, you know, six of the nine. And so we miss kind of a lot. So as a result, unlike the Oresteia, where it's really easy to draw a moral message line from one play to the next to the next. Um, really, we have to try and tease out three totally different messages from these these plays because they were not uh, presented all together. So, Even chronologically speaking, the Antigone comes from pretty early in Sophocles. Um, uh, what would you say in his corpus there from when he was a young man? Um, I just wanted to add in that. He wrote 120 something plays and we have seven. Yeah. So that in and of itself is sort of breathtaking. 
Indeed. He was Indeed. Prolific, and I think he lived for almost 100 years. I didn't know that. Um, I think I think so. Yeah, well, that's that's crazy, though. But I will, I will so anyway. search for that. <laughs> so, yeah, so anyway, um, the, the Oedipus Rex kind of is sort of the literary climax of, of Sophocles' journey. It's, it's one, of, uh, one of his very late plays. And then Oedipus at Colonus, um, I believe, was performed uh, posthumously. So um, that trilogy was not produced by Sophocles when it was actually put on stage as the others would have been, but he had, I suppose, transcripted the scripts and they were able to, to give that play in honor of him. Um, from a story perspective, um, we're talking about the house of Cadmus, which is the sort of the, just like the, the house of Atreus is the founding family, mythologically speaking of Argos, the house of Cadmus is the founding family of the city of Thebes. And there's some really interesting stuff about the background there. So Cadmus, and I'm going to get some of these details not quite right because I am not as familiar with these myths as I am with um, with the, the House of Atreus, but more or less Cadmus um, slays a dragon and cuts it into pieces and plants it into the ground and giants spring up from the earth basically and the mixture of earth and dragon and those people are the the founding people of thebes um one of the daughters of cadmus is uh semele who has um she you know gets pregnant by zeus and bears dionysus so dionysus uh, is the god to whom all of these plays and the tragedies were presented and so Dionysus has this kind of cryptic sort of appearance in all three of the plays. And sometimes it's just only in one line, but he's kind of an effervescent vapor uh, that's kind of persisting through um, the Theban plays. Um, and and it, prob it probably would have been really good for us to have read the Bacchae by Euripides, which is chronologically later, but may have kind of given us some, some more context for, for those plays and the story of the House of Cadmus and all of that. But anyway... And we well, there's also a cool historical or history of philosophy point that Nietzsche relies heavily on Dionys Dionysus and the Dionysian spirit. Mm -hmm. but at the beginning of Beyond Good and Evil, he references the Sphinx in Oedipus Rex. Indeed, who who is the Sphinx? Is it we or something else? It's a very cryptic passage in Nietzsche, mm -hmm. but a lot of his philosophy or a lot of his metaphor comes back to these plays or this myth in some ways. Right, and particularly in Nietzsche, it's the dichotomy between the Dionysian spirit and the Apollonian spirit. Like He really kind of pits Apollo and Dionysus against one another as sort of like the two ways of kind of interpreting the world. And I think more or less, and I don't know this for a fact, but I think more or less Nietzsche sort of argues that there's the there's got to be a dynamic balance between order and order of the Apollonian and the revelry of the Dionysian. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, um, where was I? My apologies. No, no problem. So the tidbit in there. So the, 
basically Oedipus is fr is a descendant of Cadmus. His father was Laius, um, and and Laius's father was Labdicus. Um, and well, as we're going to hear about Oedipus's own family tree, it's quite complicated and grotesque and a little bit disturbing. Um, but before we kind of jump into to all of that and you know maybe what we can tease out of the play itself i think it would it would be good to maybe set the stage um with just a little bit about i don't know i've been i was thinking a lot as we were reading um particularly oedipus rex i was thinking about freud and the modern understanding of an oedipus complex and the modern understanding of like an oedipal mother um Concepts which I think are very real, um, but I think to say that they they come from Sophocles' portrayal of the Oedipal myth, I think is a mistake, because I think Sophocles is telling a much more, um, I don't want to say dynamic, but a much more moralistic story than perhaps the some of the original myths themselves. And Freud was deeply deeply versed in all of the mythology so i'm not taking away from the fact that he had chosen the oedipal myth to kind of name this what he would call the root of all psychoses really um but i think in the particular context of tragedy we want to stay away from from those things because i think sophocles is telling this story in a much different light than the the myths themselves the uh, the more ancient myths and that really gets i think to the heart of tragedy the the institution really of tragedy was bringing new life to these old stories as a form of kind of collective meditation upon the good by experiencing or seeing on stage characters who are not so different from ourselves falling into errors that are not so different from the errors that we would fall into. And they serve really as a, as a, as a guide. It's, this is what not to do, or these are the things to be aware of when you're kind of going through life. I took, I took that track too. I find the, the Freudian use of the story to be very compelling in the sense that tragedy is born out of not our image of ourselves, but the darker recesses of our mind, in a way. So I've, I found the Freudian part interesting reading these stories where the unconscious becomes um, what the unconscious becomes the tragedy, you know, and um, it, it would fail the story to take the Freudian approach in any way because of the privileging of the individual in the tragedy over the uh, the characters in the story does that make sense yeah for sure and i and i think it was i i kind of had this interesting moment where i was thinking and we mentioned it last time how clytemnestra comes off as way more of an oedipal mother in the libation bearers than jocasta does in oedipus rex or at least that was my takeaway like there's something seriously wrong with Clytemnestra. She is the Oedipal mother who tries to seduce her son more or less right before he kills her. And Jocasta seems to be a much more tragic figure because of her non-compliance kind of with everything and her true ignorance of 
what was going on. I think pr- there's there's probably a, a version of the myth that is either recorded in some place that I haven't read it, or maybe it's lost to the modern world where Jocasta is kind of sitting there in the background knowing that Oedipus is her son and, you know, whatever. There's probably probably is or was that version of the story that Freud was tapping into, but it's certainly not the Sophocles portrayal of it. Mm. Yeah, that, those are very interesting characters to juxtapose. The one thing I think we missed in our previous conversation was that Clytemnestra was able to hold a grudge for 10 years against her husband. And that didn't really hit me until after our conversation. But what would it be like to hate for 10 years? That, well, it would probably drive you to murder. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and much, much worse. But very, very different characters in the in terms of tragedy. Um, anyways, do, do you want to move on to the first story? Sure. So, um, so how do you want to do this? Do you want to maybe talk about the play kind of as we go, or summarize the story first? I think a summary would probably help for Oedipus. We'll do Oedipus Rex and Oedipus Colonus, and then we'll move on to the great and wonderful Antigone. The great and wonderful Antigone. Okay, so he is my hero. <laughs> she is. She is a hell of a woman. There is. We'll have lots to say about her, I'm sure. So we'll start with Oedipus Rex. So we kind of start just, and and this I think, so Oedipus Rex is, in Aristotle's opinion, the perfect tragedy um, for reasons that I should know because I've read the poetics, but it's been a while, so I can't call them to mind exactly. But more or less, it's that the, the story is able to elucidate the proper amount of pity and fear and we're able to see in the characters ourselves and our own errors and our own proclivity to do bad things, even in ignorance. Um, another thing that Aristotle points out is the unity of the plot and how, how it flows. Um, and so kind of on that vein, we start the story sort of in medias res, right? We're in the middle more or less of what's going on. So we don't actually see the the story of the, of Oedipus and the Sphinx that all happens beforehand. And we're kind of in a state where Apollo is raining down death and disease as, as he seems to be wont to do, right? He does that to the Greeks in at the beginning of the Iliad as well. And so Apollo is raining down disease and a a priest, and it's not Tiresias, Tiresias comes in later, but a priest, is this right? A, a priest, you know, basically discerns that there's still, yeah, that this is right, that there's still a, a, a plight, there's still a, an uncleanliness about the Theban people. And so Oedipus inquires as to what this uncleanliness is, and it's that the, the murderer of the former king of Thebes, Laius, um, is still at large and alive and living in Thebes. And so Oedipus commits himself to, you know, basically purging the city of this stain and will stop at nothing until the murderer is brought to justice and executed. Um, and, you know, through a, through a series of, 
of interesting characters and roundabout ways, um, we ultimately learn that it was Oedipus himself who had killed the former king. And not only that, but he had married his own father's wife, his own mother, and had had children by her. And thus his four children are actually his siblings as well. Yeah. And this was, this was born of, he was left abandoned by his parents. Um, a shepherd took him away from his parents after an oracle said that their son would um, marry his mother and kill his father. And the shepherd took pity on him. And so he was shipped over to another city. Uh, or, the, or the shepherd brought him to another city as a baby. And there he was raised. But his new parents never told him that he was abandoned. Mm-hmm. And so... And that was in Corinth. Yeah. And, and then the same oracle was told to him. So he left Corinth because he didn't want to even be have the possibility of killing his father and marrying his mother. So he leaves Corinth and is on the way to Thebes, gets into more or less the first recorded incident of road rage <laughs> and kills this man who turns out to be his father, finally gets to Thebes and then saves Thebes from its plight with the Sphinx. And that's a really interesting story, um, the Sphinx is, because... Um, you know, the Sphinx has a riddle, and the riddle is, and I think the variations differ, but it's, what is it that crawls on four legs in the morning, walks on two legs at midday, and three legs in the evening? And Oedipus knows the answer, and it's, a man does, right? As a baby, he crawls on f- all fours. As a man, he walks on his two feet, and as an old man, he walks on his two feet, assisted by a cane. And the Sphinx beaten throws itself off a cliff. Yeah. <laughs> and so Thebes is grateful for the return or for the basically the return of their freedom. They welcome Oedipus in, make him their king, and marry them off to their former king's wife. Um and they have four children. Mm-hmm. So one of the interesting things that has struck me about the Oedipus story. And I guess, okay, let's finish, let's finish the, the summary, I guess, and then we'll get to my point. So ultimately, the, the seer, Tiresias, is, um, you know, and it, it's early on in the play, Tiresias comes out and says, Oedipus, you're the one who killed Laius. And then we get the shepherd, and then we get the messenger from Corinth, who says that the, that, um, the king and queen of Corinth are dead. And ultimately it kind of comes to a front when, when the, the shepherd confronts Jocasta ab- about the whole thing. And she realizes before anyone else that, oh my gosh, she understands the scenario. Once Oedipus comes to the realization of what's happened, he goes in and finds that Jocasta has hung herself and he stabs his eyes out. With and, her dress pins. Yeah, with her dress pins. To live forever on in blindness. What did you make of him stabbing his eyes out? Well, there's the interesting juxtaposition with Tiresias the prophet, because Tiresias, who can see the truth, is actually blind. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of interesting imagery there about I and my blindness can see 
right? And there's it's almost as if well, I think that there's a there's a great theme that kind of pervades tragedy, and we didn't touch on it a lot, but in in the Agamemnon, there's a line in the chorus, in the first chorus, that's pathe mothos, and it's he learns by suffering, or we we learn by suffering. Mm, so, and I think in my translation, it was suffer into truth. Yeah, suffer into truth. Um, and there's something really interesting about that. It's that when you learn to see when you learn wisdom, it's just, it's beyond your capacity of understanding coming to the truth. Like the truth is so much bigger than you are. And so when you actually confront the truth in a real way, everything falls apart before its majesty and its awe, or in this case, in its terribleness. Right. And so there's unlike you know, it's it's kind of it's kind of a reverse of the well. It's it's very analogous to the cave, which we'll get to from from Plato, right? It's when you first pull yourself out from the cave into the light of the sun, you want to cover your eyes, and sometimes you have to cover your eyes. It's so the the brightness of the truth is so great that it blinds you and it hurts and it would you would rather be blind than be subjected to that kind of, to that kind of pain. Mm -hmm. And it seems that, you know, Oedipus can't bear the, the uncovering of the truth. Do you think that there's a distinction between the Agamemnon um, and Aeschylus's trilogy and Sophocles or an Oedipus? In the sense that in the Agamemnon, it seemed as though we could really blame the characters for being in the position they were in. But Oedipus is a blameless person in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. besides the road rage incident. Um, it's hard to say that we would blame him for the course that his life took. In the same way as uh, in the previous plays, I think I think there is a little bit of a difference. I think in at least in the Aeschylean tragedy that we read, tragedies we read, fate was still ultimately in the hands of the individual's free will, and in Sophocles, it's 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 almost like a return to a kind of Iliadic form of fate, where no matter what you do, no matter what your attempts to skirt it. You're going, what is fated will come to pass. And I think, and I, and I think the difference there gets on a, an equally profound truth, right? So the truth from, that we learned from Aeschylus is that your fate, your tragic fate is only brought about by your own errors. And maybe the same can be said of Oedipus, but also in a lot of ways, it's not really his fault. Um, his innocence, in my opinion, is demonstrable. But in in Aeschylus, I need to formulate this better. In Aeschylus, you fall into your fate through free will, and so the, the moral injunction in Aeschylus is to really get your act together, mm -hmm. so that you don't 
repeat the sins of your past, the sins of your fathers. Whereas in Oedipus, I think, I think that the difference between Aeschylus and Sophocles is one is a warning, a forewarning before you sin, and one is what to do after you sin. Right? Yeah. What can you really do? You've you've fallen, you've missed the mark, you haven't really understood how. What are you going to do about it now? And I don't think that that comes out so much in in Oedipus itself. Maybe it does. I think there is I think there is something kind of beautiful and morally injunctive about blinding yourself mm. so that you can see. Mm. Right? I mean it's it's it, it's not an injunction to go stab your eyes out. It's an injunction to literally shed off the way in which you view the world because the way in which you were interacting with reality was so flawed that you couldn't see your sinfulness. And that's why you can, were constantly and even to, unto now thinking, thinking yourself to be innocent. You have to shed off everything, the whole, the whole interpretive structure that you use to make sense of the world. When you're confronted with a truth like that, when you're confronted with an error so grave, you have to cast it all away and, you know, kind of walk in darkness in order to regain a footing in the world that would make sense. Right. And I think that there's, I think there's value in that. It's, you know, you think of, you know, in a long-term relationship when it's finally uncovered that one of the one of the partners is unfaithful and you just you couldn't you everything that you thought for the last 45 years has been predicated on a lie and it's like you have to literally shed off your the way that you looked looked and viewed and acted in the world so that you can make sense of the past because right now there's there's no way to make sense of it in light of what you thought you knew and what you know now there is yeah and that there's a there's a potency to that metaphor in that whatever we call wisdom is not a thing that is sensation uh, oedipus has to go beyond sensation to see the truth after what he's done but i did want to sort of question myself with the free will question between the plays because oedipus is told that he's gonna kill his father and marry his mother so the injunction would be to never kill if that's what you're fated to do then just don't kill anyone and yet on his way away from corinth that's exactly what he does so he is to blame in some sense if an oracle tells you you're fated to kill then don't kill, regardless of who you think it is. Right. So he is to blame in that sense. Indeed. And the same same can be said if you're going if you're fated to marry your mother, don't ever get married. <laughs> right. So I so there is there is a certainly a lack of wisdom in the way he acted upon the oracles. You know revelations. There was something in some sense that he could have done, even though everything that he did do was justifiable in the moment, in the context of the oath or of the, of the oracle, perhaps it would have been better to not have. So there is still, there is still that free will element 
but but maybe what Sophocles is getting at here is that oh, this is interesting that the free will that we see in the Aeschylus tragedies is still ever present, mm-hmm. yet that process of reflection determining what you should and shouldn't do is way harder Hmm. at least in sophocles telling there is we talked about some connections between the iliad and the modern world um i i focus particularly on language the length of speech things things in that way but i've the the thing that sort of off put me as a modern person reading this text was the oracle or the oracles that enter the play and i was really curious about historically what future tellers or oracles meant and if there's any modern equivalent of oracles or if we've done away with them as crackpots and people who steal other people's money fortune tellers and so on because there's something extremely profound in the plays about the oracles and yet there's no analogous thing that i could latch on to to understand what an oracle's message might mean yeah well i don't know a whole lot about this but i i know enough to know that whatever whatever the oracle at delphi was doing and it was likely drugs. There's some pretty hard evidence for that. <coughs> whatever she was doing and whatever messages she was bringing back were held in the highest regard historically. When you needed an answer to something, you took a pilgrimage to Delphi and you consulted the oracle. Um, that plays all the way through the apology. It does, yeah. I mean, that's... Socrates goes to goes to her and she tells him that he's the wisest man in Greece. It's very it's very different than the modern sense in that in our contemporary world there's no unified sense of where we're going. And the oracle was a sense of where you're going, right, a place. Yeah. I think I think maybe a lot has been lost um you know, in in a lot has been lost in the death of God, right? I think something very akin to consulting the oracle is going on pilgrimage and going to confession to some eighty-five-year-old monk who can has the wisdom to solve all of your problems in ten sentences, if only you have the guts to listen. Hmm. Um, I think maybe. We need more oracles, though that might just be an aside. I know we certainly do, and 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 I think that really wise people, really smart people, but particularly really wise people, can see the future. It's you know, human beings are incredibly complex creatures, and yet we follow pretty predictable patterns. <laughs> And I think if you understand the human condition well enough, you can more or less predict what people's futures are going to, going to hold. I mean, look at Nietzsche, for example. I mean, he predicts the, the deaths of hundreds of millions at the hands of communism. Um, 
just very eerie passages. Yeah, they're in the will to power. That's a fucked up book. But I think uh, they're also in another text. Well, they're also there's also stuff about the horrors of communism in the gay science, and yeah. and and also there's a passage about on the other hand, basically the the great the great Fuhrer and the lion who tramples through the land and drives out the Jews and all this stuff. It's it and he was an incredibly prophetic figure and I think that that kind of comes from a deep deep rootedness in in good literature. I mean the guy read everything but was an expert of these of particularly of 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 Greek stories and myths and plays and all of that stuff. I will hold that thought out there for the future, but I think that the modern world alienates the future in a way. It's skeptical about the future, or it doesn't believe in the future um, in the way that these plays bring about. I think there might be a teaching or a warning embedded in that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, we've, we've, we've killed the future and replaced it with progress. <laughs> right? The future is something that happens to us, but progress is something that we create. Mm. And so there's a kind of a, a fundamental lack of humility at the leveling power of time. I think there's also a sense in which everyone, every group has a future that they wish to create that's different and polarized as the modern world is. Every different story that a group's telling itself uh, imagines a different future. And I'm thinking particularly here of uh, climate change arguments and debates, you know, the catastrophe of the ecosystem. Uh, we had an interesting speaker come and he gave a talk on learning to die in the Anthropocene about how the climate was going to kill us is a very different story than what you would hear from someone who would be politically different than him. Mm -hmm. And I think what these plays show from what we've read, um, especially in Aeschylus, is what Aeschylus offers is a unified future for the people of Athens, one in which the Furies become the humanities and act on the behalf of justice. That's a very unifying message at the end of those points. And um, yeah, I, this thought just occurred to me during this conversation, so I haven't gone too deep into it, but uh, I find a sort of unease about the future, but no oracles in our present condition. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's, it's a pretty profound thought, you know, that maybe we've, in, in our attempts, to, in, in our in, in, in our noble attempts to kind of get rid of superstition, we also killed the veritable fortune tellers, hmm. right? Yeah, and in a, and in a more personal sense, science has in some ways replaced an oracle, in that you know, if you want to keep smoking or if you eat too much or so on. We know the diseases that will happen. It's sort of a predictable future in an interesting way. 
That's an interesting thought. But it's also very lifeless, the the kind of there is there is no there is no clear ethics that science brings. Yeah, I think I think we'll have to have a debate about that sometime. Yeah. <laughs> but I agree yeah. with your I agree with your lifeless point, at least as it's presented. There is something lifeless about that. But I, I have brought us far afield. So if if you would like, we can turn to uh, what happens to Oedipus after he plucks his eyes out. Yeah, I do. I kind of do want to want to dwell a little bit more on the relationship, and, and maybe perhaps next, maybe when we actually read the cave is a more apropos time to talk about it. But I think there is there's something to be said, particularly in the context of Oedipus and what he becomes in Oedipus at Colonus as a sort of sacred figure as a result of his kind of defilement. And, and I think hmm. he is cathartic to his story by the end of it. He does, in a certain way, um, in his blessing of the city of Athens, and I know we haven't summarized this far, but he, he does give a kind of catharsis to the horror of him murdering his father and marrying his mother. I just, but, I'm, I'm having trouble like explaining or articulating what it could mean that the sins of our past and in a more general sense, the sins of our culture are in some sense what give them life. Right. So in, in the Oedipus at Colonist story, a lot happens and it's a, it's a way more complex play than I think it gets credit for, but more or less the moral of the story is that, if you exile your father, if you cast off your culture, and then come later to realize that you need it, it might not be willing to accept you back once you've cast it off. It will find a new land. It will find a new people to bless. Hmm. And you will lose anything that it would have had to offer to you. I mean, that's, that's what happens to Oedipus. He's... He's banished by his son, uh, Polynices, who's king after, after the story of Oedipus Rex when he blinds himself. The plan, right, is to exile Oedipus right away, but it takes several years because they never hear back from the oracles. And so Polynices just does it, you know, and Oedipus is an old man by this point. And so he flies off more or less into the territory of Athens. And... Theseus, the king of Athens, welcomes Oedipus with open arms. And as a result, Oedipus gives him the gift of knowing where his tomb shall be. And Oedipus knows, because Oedipus is himself a sort of prophetic character, wherever his tomb is, that land shall be blessed. Mm -hmm. And this similar this is a similar revelation is given to the thebans and so they send creon on a mission to bring oedipus back into thebes and 
they beg him to come back and, and, and Oedipus says, no, you, you've banished me, you've exiled me. And so now I've, I've found another to whom I will bestow my blessing. And I think there's a particularly moral injunction on us today in the 21st century that we need to be very, very cautious about casting off our culture, our society, our traditions because of their sinfulness. I mean, that's exactly what Polynices does. He casts off his culture and his father because of his monstrous acts. Mm -hmm. And eventually they come to realize that they need them back. And, and Oedipus says no. I mean, and this is exactly what, you know, the neo-Marxist radical feminist types are, are arguing for, that Western culture is nothing more than the impression, oppression of, you know, the capitalist white patriarchy. <laughs> and it all needs to be overthrown because it's nothing more than its sins. Just quickly before we move there, what grounds did uh, Polynices ask Oedipus to come back? Uh, it was an oracle, the revelation of an oracle. Hmm. And it was, it was, by this time it was Edicles actually, because Edicles had overthrown Polynices and banished him. And okay. so it's Edicles through an oracle comes to realize that they need Oedipus back. And and Oedipus refuses to come. And interestingly as well, <clears throat> Polynices finds his way to actually meet with Oedipus in the play, and he asks for his father's blessing to take his army, seven armies, in fact, back to Thebes to conquer the city and reestablish himself on the throne. And Oedipus refuses to do that, and he curses his sons, in fact. He curses Polynices and Oedipus to, to die fighting each other. Hmm which that'll ultimately set the stage for the Antigone. Yeah. But I, I completely agree with the, the lesson that you're drawing from this. There's uh, an utter disrespect for tradition, actually a hatred for tradition as if um, our culture only ever produced evil. It's a very strange political, um, movement that's happening now ironically enough a political movement that doesn't agree with itself logically but there's something really profound about the that what you cast off cannot come back to save you right yet you yourself do not know what you're casting off which in the case of oedipus was um, a supernatural blessing on Athens. Yeah, and one that could have been on Thebes had they just kept him there in the first place. Yeah, and Oedipus in this way is sort of, he's the character that escapes fate. He, after he blinds himself, he sort of takes up his punishment on himself and becomes more than his tragedy, which we don't see in uh, Aeschylus's tragedies. Uh, it's like a character that moves beyond the horror of what fate gave them. So there's a really interesting book 
that <clears throat> I expect we will read, and it'll be very towards the end of our of our trek. It's by Rene Girard. It's from the late twentieth century, and and he talks about Oedipus at Colonus quite a lot, and he talks about it in, in the particular context of the Latin word sacer, which is the root word of sacred, and turns out that the word, root word sacer you know, it means set apart, ultimately, right? Holy things are set apart for special use. But it actually derives its meaning from ugliness, like cursed, impure things that we set apart so that they won't foul us up, foul us up. right? The sacred is something, you know, in this more originary sense of the word, the sacred is something utterly other in a disgusting disgusting way and <clears throat> and that is really embodied well Girard argues in this play Oedipus at Colonus right it's he's so ugly Oedipus is that he's sacred because the word later takes on this new meaning this set apart in a positive way and the two get blended together it's set apart so that we don't we don't cause impurity to come to it as much as it doesn't cause impurity to come unto us. Um, and ultimately it's through the sacred that we're able to, in, in Gerard's view, we're able to, through sacred things, we're able to ultimately satisfy our need for violence, our innate need for violence. And the, that thesis is sort of replicated in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. Um, Say more about that. Well, it's, you know, blessed are the poor and so on. That is what Oedipus is. Like you were saying, he's an ugly, downtrodden, blinded man. And yet he's the one that holds the power of a blessing in the end mm-hmm. it, in his pitiful state is actually where he finds the most power. And that's the blessing upon a city. I don't know if that precisely connects to your Gerard point. No, I mean, I, I think it does actually in a, in a cool way. There is something, I mean, we talked about this earlier that he will uh, suffer into truth. There is the sense in which Oedipus suffers into truth. And in his state of being no longer king, no longer powerful, is actually the state in which he's most powerful. It's paradoxical and I think profound in a certain way. It's sort of the sense in which the degree to which you humble yourself is the degree to which you become powerful. Yeah. And the degree to which you are able to withstand suffering is the degree to which you may know wisdom. And, th- and that, is, that is the gospel message, right? The last shall be first and the first shall be last. There's, yeah. I, I, I guess I had always interpreted that as sort of a judgmental claim. Those who are at the front now will be at the back later and vice versa. But it's almost... In the, in the case of Oedipus, it's 
those who are first shall become last and in so doing become first again, which is precisely the story of the rise and fall of Oedipus, the rise, fall, and subsequent re-rise of Oedipus. Yeah, indeed. There's a, there's a sense in which in all of these plays that there's nothing desirable about power. Those who become powerful, both in Aeschylus and Sophocles, and indeed in the Iliad, the power is usually corrupting and it's usually destroying. And yet, at least in our society, there is a sort of worship of fame and um, money, riches, influence. Well, even the, even the word we use now when we build somebody up, we quote unquote empower them. <laughs> but which, why would you want to do that? <laughs> I would much rather encourage someone. Well, yeah, indeed. And one of the things that Sophocles begs in that vein is um, whether we actually want what we think we want, whether we actually see the world clearly when we see the obtaining of power and wealth and influence as something that's good or something that will actually in the end destroy wisdom and blessings um, if they're not tended to carefully. And I think maybe, I'll, I'm interested to hear what you think about this, but um, Zeus becomes the king of the gods and yet he seems more just than anyone before him. So it seems that there is a noble way to hold power as well as the power that corrupts or the power that will inevitably fall into tragedy. Power in and of itself doesn't seem to be the evil thing. It's almost like the desire to use power is the evil thing. Mm -hmm. Right. Somebody has to be in the situation where they're ruling. But like you say, it's and as we'll as we definitely see in Antigone, right? It's like Creon is the ultimate tyrant. And because he's seeking to use his power for the sake of his own ends. Whereas power embodied in, a, in, in an individual and acted upon for the sake, not of the collective, but of the individuals within the collective. Mm. That's what power is. Good power, right? It's when you use power in that way, such that you build up the individual in society, that's good. But when you use power towards not even necessarily selfish ends, but towards potentially noble ends, right? But it's the desire to use power that seems to be the to, seems to be the evil. I I agree. I think it's not about selfish ends in these plays. It's about selfish motives. It seems that every time a character like Creon, which we'll get to in Antigone, acts for themselves out of motivation for the self, that's when tragedy strikes. Um, Oedipus killing his father and his whole entourage on the highway. Uh, he is acting for himself. 
there's there's a very I was thinking this and I, I think we could get to Antigone. Um but there's something very deontological in this is sort of like as soon as characters begin to act in ways that could not be universalized, that's exactly where everything goes horribly hmm. wrong. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Maybe as a final point before we move on to the Antigone, I'd like to kind of speak, talk about something that arose when I was reading um, Oedipus at Colonus. And you're going to have to indulge this for a second. I think there's an interesting parallel between the sons of Isaac, right, Jacob and Esau, and the sons of Oedipus, um, Polynices and Edicles. So, right, and the story of Jacob and Esau is that they're twins. And Esau is the older brother, and Jacob comes out grabbing at his ankle, and he's named Jacob the supplanter. And he ends up stealing his brother's birthright. And that's not really stealing. He offers his brother a bowl of soup in, ex in exchange for his birthright. And so the younger brother takes it. And then at the end of Isaac's life, when it's time for him to impart a blessing upon his sons, Isaac disguises himself as Esau and receives the blessing meant for Esau. And so the younger brother supplants not only the older brother in his birthright, right, but also in the blessing that he receives from his father. And, well, fearing for his life that Esau is going to kill him, Jacob gets the hell out of Dodge and doesn't come back for many years. And when he does come back, Jacob seems to, has lear to have learned his lesson. And he brings, you know, just mountainous gifts to give back to Esau in reparation for having stolen the birthright. That's one version of how the story can play out, right? And there's a moral there. The other version of how the story can play out is, is the sons of, of Oedipus, right? So it's the same story. The older brother is supplanted by the younger brother and banished. And rather than learning his lesson, or I suppose... Rather than being open and willing to the younger brother's pleas, which they're not presented in, in this story or in any of the versions of the story that I know, but Polynices would, would not accept a gifts of reparation. Instead, he goes out and gets an army to go slaughter his older brother or his younger brother and put himself back on the throne. And he asks for his father's blessing in doing so and Oedipus rejects it. And there's also the, the parallel there that Isaac was blind, or more or less blind, and, and Oedipus was blind. And so there's kind of, they're parallel stories. They're not the same story, but they're parallel stories. Two different ways that you can respond to being supplanted by your younger brother. You can accept gifts of his for his reparation after he's learned his lesson, or you can go get an army and go slaughter him. And mm -hmm. clearly one is the right way to act and the other is not. Because if, if you choose to take your army, then you're go both going to die and everybody's screwed. I really like that parallel. I was also thinking of the uh, Paris-Hector discussion we were having. 
when you were saying that? Say more. Uh, the sense in which Hector defends Paris, though Paris is indefensible. Mm-hmm. And it's it. I love how these stories make family the center of everything, which is in Aristotle's politics. It, it begins with a family or the union of two. Um, I think that might be one of the answers to why these stories are so relatable. It's, it's that we, we all come from families. Most of us have brothers and sisters. Um, and I love how they speak to the reality of that. It, whether or not you find envy in your brother um, and seek to undermine them or outdo them, or whether or not you um, seek reparations with your brother in those two different cases. I'm just struck by how epic stories center around families in that sense. But I do, I do really like your parallel between those two stories. And it's interesting to see family dynamics play out in ways that both produce reliable misery or a chance at a future that doesn't have the sins of the past stacked on top of it. The, the meta lesson seems to be something like, if you can treat your family members properly, if you can learn how to act ethically within the family, then you've kind of achieved it. You've made it, quote unquote, right? Because, you, because that is, because life kind of is the family. And once, you, once you've gotten yourself in order, then you can put your family in order, and then the world is put in order by the act of you doing that. And if, if you fail, if you sin, if you do something terrible, or something terrible happens to you, uh, it is exactly the family that you have to go to, in that sense, too. Right, and, and your sons will be cursed down to the third generation, too. That's really interesting. I mean, I think, that, wow. You can kind of go back and reinterpret everything we've read in, right, in light of this sort of lesson. And I think we've, we've been kind of, we've been hinting at it. You were right with the conversation with Paris and Hector. But we also, I mean, learn how to act in the family, and that's a good lesson for how to act in the world. And we have a bunch of examples of how to do that well and how to do that poorly. You know, poorly, for example, is going to fight a war against your brother to reclaim your throne. Properly, on the other hand, well, that's Antigone. Um, so with that, do you, do you want to go ahead and summarize Antigone for us? And Sure. Um, though I do want to say that... There was one more person you missed there. Hmm. Um, Agamemnon, he, his downfall is the betrayal of the family. Right. His murder is caused by uh, the murder of his daughter. And I think the lesson going off of what we've been talking about there is you never betray the family. That is the rock on which you stand in some ways. Right. You can... You only betray it to the detriment of yourself. Yeah. 
So, moving on to the Antigone, the finest of all plays. <laughs> and this is because Antigone is the most badass character. <laughs> I mean, unlike any character in any of the plays we've read, she is so defiant and so unquestioning of her position. I just, I fell in love with this character. <laughs> reading reading it, I I haven't had that much connection with the character, but I'd, I'd like to think that I try to be Antigone more often than not. Well, just don't kill yourself. <laughs> I won't do that. Although, I might if you lock me in a tomb. <laughs> so, the, the play starts with uh, Creon saying that um, Polynices' dead body can't be buried, which is the brother of Antigone. And I guess he can't be buried because he fought a war against Edicles for the throne. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess I wanted to ask you this because I didn't get it exactly from the play, but burial was like an instruction from the gods. Like it would be a betrayal to the gods if you didn't properly bury a body. Yeah, I think in the theology, it's more or less that your soul can't cross the river Styx into the underworld unless mm-hmm. you've been buried. And so it's the will of the gods that people be buried. Mm-hmm. Because that's what, that's what Antigone says to Creon. Like, it's like the, the ultimate betrayal or the ultimate thing that you can do to someone is not allow them to be buried. And we, see that, we saw that a lot in the Iliad. Yeah. And we, that, that, I mean, that really underlines Achilles and Priam. Mm-hmm. And that scene is that Achilles allows the ultimate betrayal to not occur. That's, that's fascinating. But any, anyway, so Antigone goes and throws dirt on the body. And the sentry comes back to Creon and says, um, you know, well, we weren't really keeping watch. And that's a hilarious scene in and of itself. Um, that is a hilarious scene. <laughs> someone, someone threw dirt on the body. And that was Antigone, who um, began with her sister, and she said, You're, you should do this with me. This is the right thing to do. And her sister ends up not doing it with her, Ismay. But eventually, uh, when she goes to pour libations on the body, um, she's caught by the sentry, who Creon's basically threatening to kill if he doesn't find out who threw dirt on the body. And then he brings Antigone in. She's extremely headstrong and Creon even worse than Haemon. Is that the correct pronunciation? Uh, yeah, Haemon. Haemon, Creon's son, who was supposed to be married to Antigone, comes in and questions his father. And his father, Creon, won't change his mind. Isn't that a beautiful scene, though? It is. Because it's like the fierce loyalty that Haemon has for creon and yet his willingness to to point out hey you know pops you're making a mistake and it's not because i'm proud or headstrong but it's i'm i'm humbled by your greatness but for you and your best interests out of my loyalty to you listen you're making an error here yeah because all of the people hate you for this right 
and Antigone is led to her death, uh, which is to be buried in the tomb. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get, was she supposed to be brought food rations in the tomb? No, so the idea is basically if you bury someone alive, you're not responsible for their death. Hmm. And so the Furies, the, so to speak, the idea is that the Furies wouldn't come after Creon because he didn't actually kill Antigone. He buried her alive in a tomb, and if the gods willed her to live, she could. Um, but so that's the idea, and it actually pervades. It's actually a pretty, I don't know, more or less common thing that there were v- virgins in Rome called the Vestal Virgins, and if one of them had been unfaithful for whatever, their job was to keep a fire burning forever in the heart of the city of Rome. And basically whenever something bad happened, it, it must be because the Vestal Virgins are being unfaithful. So either they're sleeping with people or not keeping the fire lit. And so mm-hmm. they would do the same thing to the Vestal Virgins. They would never kill them because they would, didn't want the blood on their hands. So they would bury them alive. <laughs> like that actually happened. Yeah, clearly fate had a different idea. Uh, in both cases. Mm-hmm. But then, um, is it, who's the, who is the oracle? It's like Thyestes? He's the blind, the blind oracle. Well, it's Tiresias again. Tiresias, that's it. Yeah. He comes to Creon and he says, um, if you, if you do this, and this is after Antigone's been locked away in the tomb. Um, if you do this, terrible things will and happen. And Hyman kind of exiled himself too. That's the important note. He, after his father is unrelenting to him, he runs off and doesn't come back. Yeah. And then um, Creon listens to the listens to Tiresias and goes to take uh, Antigone out of the tomb and to bury the body. Um, eventually, after this extremely long part of the book where he's rejecting everyone's advice on this and when he gets to the tomb Antigone has hung herself and Haemon's there and he lashes out with his sword at his father but misses and instead falls on his sword and his wife hearing of this from a messenger kills herself so then Creon is left in absolute agony from his decisions well, that's the basic plot summary. What I was really struck by was the fact that Creon repented of his earlier stubbornness. He did, but it, and, it's an ignoble repent. It's not... You, you don't find any sympathy for him, and that's why I said a very long scene of trying to dissuade him from this course of action. See, I, don't, I had a different reaction. Like, I kind of... I kind of, by the time, I, I sort of felt for, I, I mean, I think that's what makes him so tragic, is that you do start to feel for him. It's like he does attempt to do the right thing, and he buries Polynices with funeral rites, and he goes to the tomb to let Antigone free. But you can't, there's something deeply ingrained in this story, and it's that you don't get away with anything. Right? Yeah, but... I think if you if you weigh the arguments made to him, I, I just didn't feel sympathy for him. Mm. One of the most beautiful speeches from Antigone was that Zeus didn't make this decree, nor did justice, 
and you're just a mortal. Like, how dare you think you're above the gods and above justice mm-hmm. to hold in this way? And I think that Creon's demise was him thinking that he was above all else. It was his word that was the law. There was no law above him. Right. There was no, and in his defense, he makes no pleas to the gods. Um, right. He makes only pleas to himself. Yeah. That's, that's really true. And I, I mean, that it would be interesting to see if we could hash this out here because I was as when Creon was in agony. I mean, I didn't feel good because nobody survives ultimately, but I, I felt no sympathy for him because of the tyrannical way in which he acted and the way, and the way in which his appeals to both Antigone and Haemon and to the blind Oracle were so self-righteous and self-regarding that as king he was the law and there was no other law than him. Hmm. Yeah, I guess in some sense you could say my, my sympathy was maybe misplaced. And, and it could simply be that I identify with Creon. <laughs> right, that would make sense. You be the Creon, I'll be the Antigone. Well, I'd rather not be the Creon. I mean, <laughs> he is, he's the one who has to bear the weight of the tragedy in the end. Because he made an error. It would be interesting to see what happens to, what happens to Creon. It'd be interesting to know what happens later. Because mm-hmm. you leave and it's... You're not certain what's going to happen. Is he going to kill himself? Is he going to renounce the throne? Is Yeah. And I, I wonder, gosh, I just wish these plays would have survived intact. intact. You know, and I'm sure, I'm sure that we could find the myth somewhere else written down, but is, is, does Creon remain the anti-Oedipus? Mm-hmm. And in the face of tragedy, he doesn't, he doesn't come to embody his mistakes and learn from them and learn to see through blinding himself. Or does he succumb to despair and kill himself? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm inclined to think based on all of the evidence from all of the plays that he is just the anti-Oedipus. He is. And he is also a representation of tyranny, mm-hmm. which we saw in the last play. Right, which Oedipus also was as well, right? He teeters on that edge, but never, but I guess listens, listens to Tiresias. Well, he doesn't listen to him at first either. So it's like they, Tyrese, or Oedipus and Creon find themselves throughout these plays in similar situations and act more or less the same at first. But I think it's the response to the knowledge that makes them different. And I do kind of like to imagine that Creon does despair and kills himself, and that's the end of it. He is different. And I'm forgetting the name, um, Agamemnon's wife, Clytemnestra, who, uh, who is her husband or her 
new husband. Aegisthus. Aegisthus. Aegisthus isn't given. So, like, the difference between Antigone and those plays is that Creon is given a dialectic. He's given such a long time to weigh reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike Aegisthus and Clytemnestra. Um, although Clytemnestra is given 10 years to weigh them. But I think something that was so striking in the play was Creon just was not able to give any sound reasons for his choices. He was given this long dialectic of why he shouldn't do what he's doing. And I think my my love for Antigone might come from my love of the American Revolution. <laughs> One of my favorite lines in the text was, uh, and if my present actions strike you as foolish, let's just say I've been accused of folly by a fool. And it's the, it's the sort of, yeah, you're king, so what? That doesn't make you right. Mm-hmm. I love that democratic spirit. Mm-hmm. So what, you're president. So what, you're a congressman or a senator. Um, to use certain language go fuck yourself Mm -hmm. i did the right thing i don't care and i loved that antigone was so headstrong in the sense of doing the right thing regardless of what happened to her and that being juxtaposed against the i like the very personification of tyranny the inability to change your mind, given reasons. Maybe that, that was a two aside, but no, I, I think that that's the. I mean, I think that that's got to be the lesson, right? Or, or, or part of the lesson that that this play offers. I, I was thinking, I was kind of a little bit lost in thought. I had a, I had an edition of the Antigone once that had a president. You couldn't see who his face, what is who, whose face it was, but leaning over the desk in the Oval Office, and that was the cover of the Antigone mm. uh, edition that I had. And it's striking. Again, we're kind of beating this point like a dead horse. The the absolute relevance of all of these stories and their morals to present day society. Um, because Creon embodies the kind of person that doesn't listen to reason, that isn't willing to engage in a dialogue because of some ideological, you know, Frank, yeah, it's an ideological sort of nationalistic, you know, we can't bury Polynices because he's an enemy of the state, yada, yada, yada. Um, and Antigone, on the other on the other hand, represents not only the the opposition to you know kind of tyranny, but more more fully the the inherent responsibility that we have to to one another as humans, and how that trumps our responsibility to you know a, a creed like a national creed. Right, it's like Polynices is my brother, and I will bury him. 
regardless of your political opinions, regardless of his political opinions, regardless of his quote unquote treasons. Indeed. The the sense that there's a law which whether or not um, you're one with a theological disposition or not, that is above even kings. Mm-hmm. And the king's appeal to himself as the source of law or the source of justice is the very undoing of justice. It's, it's that we, even the most powerful, have to recognize something beyond themselves that they're subject to, mm-hmm. which I think we, we've, we saw in the Iliad for sure, and we talked about fate, but everyone is subject to fate. And the lesson of Antigone's rebellion towards the king is that without humility, um, all things must come to an end. And I think this sort of ties back to what you were saying about the neo-Marxist position uh, those people who think that they hold absolute truth are the most dangerous. Yeah. And I think there's also the lesson, well, just kind of taking that logically a little, the, the one step further. You know, we, we too need to be careful. It's like we need to hold on to the truth with a capital T. But that thing is so great, so glorious, so mysterious, so out of reach that we have to be content to deal in lowercase t truths. Hmm. But those are the kinds that are dangerous because if you hold on to them too tightly and you transform them into that capital T truth, that's when you've become an ideologue. Right? There's there's a need to break the truth into meaningful and understandable adages, wisdoms, proverbs, whatever you want to call it. But holding on to them too tightly elevates them to a position that they are not, right? Mm-hmm. The summary can never take the place of the story. And when the summary does, then bad things seem to happen afterwards. Yeah. I think that there's something very interesting about the relationship between certainty and everything we've read and demise. Exactly. It's, it's the ones that are certain are all, always the ones that fail. Is going to be very good to lead into Plato's Republic after this. Indeed. And um, we see the character of Creon re, um, I guess, reintegrated into Thrasymachus. Mm-hmm. So I just, I, I've heard the phrase so many times that um, sort of the, the founders of the United States were appealing to Greece and um, the democratic instinct that the Greeks left behind. And I think I'm, I, I always sort of took it to be true, but I don't think that I really understood it until I read Antigone. 
that there was something that they were reaching back to that was very deep in Greek culture, mm-hmm. which was an instinct towards um, justice in the democratic sense rather than the tyrannical sense, and that the individual can do right regardless of the state. Mm-hmm. And you know we're you know we're seeing you know in particular the literary the literary instantiations of that truth but it happens also in greek and roman history time and time again you know the the great problem with democracy and you know plato nails this on the head in the in the republic and the founders were aware of it from there and also from history is that more or less whenever athens went full-fledged democracy very quickly thereafter it broke down into tyranny and dictatorship and that might be our own oracle i I, it seriously i mean it's you and so that's why they went to such lengths to they they tried as best they can it seems to be working out pretty well though the last 50 years are evidence that it's kind of spiral starting to spiral out of control if we don't get our acts together it's that the people need power because the people is the sacredness of the nation and not the people in an abstract collectivized sense but individuals are sacred and they are what make up the state right but individuals who are a part of families right individuals who are a part of families indeed yet it's also very easy for the sovereignty of the individual for us to make mistakes because it's easier to just collectivize. Mm-hmm. It's easy to outsource our political beliefs to a party. And so they attempted to build a system in which at least the more negative aspects of that would be protected against, namely, you know, electing a dictator. But yeah. And in a very much more personal sense, too, it's whether or not you yourself give way to a party or an ideology, which is to say to certainty, or whether you're you're able to find good to be different than those and to be willing to stand for it even when, and to stand for it with full conviction when death is the penalty for your standing it's a very a very powerful individual lesson if nothing else it's it's you know it really is that there's an injunction to be humble in the face of You, we as individuals are sacred, right? And we can take that in two ways. Either we can take it in the proper sense and that it's we are made sacred because we are humans that were, you know, socialized in a family and part of a larger collective whole with a history that is handed on traditions that we must in turn pass on to our, to the next generation. But you need that whole, that's the whole story, you know, more or less. And if you forget any of those key pieces, the 
the sacredness of the individual very, very rapidly becomes evil. And we become liars and we become Auschwitz camp guards and we become communist revolutionaries and fascists and fascists. Yeah. There's so much in that. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, these plays have been particularly difficult for me to speak about because there's just, I'm overwhelmed by them. It's, it's like I, I, finished, I finished Oedipus, and it's like it's a short play. It's like you can read it in maybe 45 minutes, maybe an hour. And it's like I read it, and I understood. You know, or I, I, I you know, could remember all the plot points, and I could bring it all up, but it's these, there are so many different levels of analysis on these plays that it totally makes sense how it is that certain people study these short plays, you know, one of them for their entire life. Mm -hmm. There's just so much there. There is. There's and, 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 it, and it kind of, even though we've got a lot of tools in our tool belt from reading, you know, some of the other stories that we've read and we have, you know, kind of a, a little hermeneutic that you and I have been developing throughout this process, it's like this, these, these, these plays in particular were very difficult for me to try and formulate my thoughts about what I wanted to say to them. It's just, just, you know, I, I, what I, what I, what I left from is that I want to see these on stage. I want to see them produced and staged. Mm -hmm. I, I really, really want that I, because I need, I think that that's what would take it to the next level for me in some sense, in, in a way that I didn't feel that was necessary for me to, you know, get a lot out of Aeschylus, but these, it's the whole time I was just wishing that I could hear the characters speak these lines and listen to the music and the thunder and the lightning and all of that. Yeah. And I found that it was almost as if I knew the plays before them because they've been retold so many times, but mm -hmm. only aspects. And that the originals had such amazing potency compared to different aspects of them that might be borrowed by a modern television series mm -hmm. or a modern book we've read. Because the, the Greek plays are very extreme in their story and their conclusion there's there's no play where some where some main character doesn't die or doesn't put themselves in face of death um where ultimate tragedy doesn't strike in a way where i think we would find absurd if we found it in a tv show or a movie it is yeah i mean just kind of Maybe one exception, and maybe it's the exception that pro proves the rule, is the, the did you see the new Star Wars Rogue One? I did see Rogue One, yeah. You know, the, they, they told a great story, but because none of those characters were originally in the saga, they had to kill them all. Mm -hmm. And I thought that there was something really profound about that storytelling, yeah. because... I actually saw that at the behest of your fiance. Oh, did you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's partly, you could partly say that it's 
it's ad hoc storytelling, right? Because we moderns have kind of a, a what I would call a bizarre need for there to just be a one canonical story, and that's the way it is. Whereas and a group of people who always win, and, yeah. and a group of people who always win. Whereas in Greek myth, it's not at all that simple. It's there's 25 different versions of what happens at the end of the story. And they're all true, by the way, right? So so part of it is, you know, was a need to like kill off these characters so that they wouldn't persist into the movie. And so they were trying to create a consistency there, which I can respect. But I think that's taking Aristotle's unity of plot a bit too far. I think it's, <laughs> you know, whatever. But But it was also really beautiful because they did they did so much and i think there's also a little bit a little bit of an emotional manipulation here so i don't know how maybe it's not good storytelling but they did so much to build up your relationship to these characters and then they slaughtered all of them in the last 10 minutes of the movie mm. and well i think that's what the greeks convey so beautifully it's it is our our birthright to die. Mm -hmm. And I love how they don't sugarcoat anything in that sense. Going to see these plays is not about seeing a protagonist win. It's actually about seeing a protagonist lose horribly. Right. And it's those lessons which become more profound than the lessons of the protagonist always wins, good always triumphs over evil, and so on. Right. Well, we need, we need the anti-hero as a proven ground so that we can be a hero. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, in an odd sort of way, human life is stacked against us to be a tragedy, and we have an injunction to live as if it's a comedy. <laughs> right. And I mean a comedy in like more of a traditional sense. A comedy has a happy ending and a tragedy has a sad ending, right? Um, and but, we're cursed to a sad ending, and yet we need to live as if there's a happy ending because because if you live as if if you live embedded in a tragedy, then it's very easy to become bitter and resentful. But I think that also what Antigone treats us to is. It's live as if it's a happy ending, but that happy ending isn't for you. Right, exactly. It comes at a con consequence. The consequence of suffering, indeed. Which, if we are following this conversation full circle, the suffering that leads to truth. The suffering that leads to truth. And that's the ultimate. Yeah, I really like that. There's a sense in which we shouldn't scorn or hate suffering it holds the greatest pearls of wisdom and the greatest treasures of uh, truth and relationship and dignity. And suffering's not merely something to be alleviated. Right. It's, it's, in fact, it's not something that's to be alleviated. It's something that's to be embraced. Right. That's the lesson of the cross. Mm. It's, a radical acceptance of the suffering of human life and the courage to live heroically in spite of the fact that you're embedded. Living as a hero despite of, despite of the fact that you're embedded within a story 
where the protagonist is an anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Right? It's choosing to be St. George, even though you're Oedipus. <laughs> and that heroism's not about you. Mm-hmm. That heroism's about something more than you. Right. It's about the community that you set free from the dragon and give its gold to. <laughs> Jordan Peterson comes in again. I, I, dude, the guy just kind of lives in my head now. <laughs> it's like I, I feel like I'm talking to him half the day. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do enjoy his, his stuff. Indeed. Well, well why don't you uh, walk us through some moral lessons you got from, from reading the Theban plays? Um, I, I mentioned this before, but I think one Antigone is my favorite character we've read so far, um, in her rebellion. But also I think that there was a deontological lesson at the heart of the Antigone, which was, I'm going to do the right thing regardless of the consequences because it is the right thing to do. And it didn't really, I mean, deontology has always struck me in a way as absurd. But Until I, you see it instantiated in such a powerful message like this one. Yeah, it was the, my brother is not going to rot on the ground without me doing something. And the king's going to kill me. And people like the chorus are going to say that I deserve this death. And I don't care. It's it's that there is a good which you can act on regardless of yourself. And that goes beyond all of the consequences. And I don't think that it's beyond all of or it goes beyond all of the consequences for self. But Antigone represents something to the people of Thebes. She's not she she sees her act as being more than just burying her brother and then dying. She knows that the good of her action stretches beyond her death in that sense. And that good is, regardless of her end, a good for everyone who knows the story. So that in a way, and this is where consequentialists accuse the ontologists of being consequentialists in the end, but that a, an act of self-sacrifice for what one knows to be good, even in spite of their death, will be far more impactful than the short-term view of saving one's life or preserving one's uh, well-being. And I think that that was probably the number one thing that stuck out to me in these stories. I w- oh, there was actually a song. It's by the band The White Stripes. Um, but the chorus, I think it's called You Don't Know What Love Is. But the chorus is You Don't Know What Love Is. You Just Do As You're Told. And um, I was listening to that today and I was reminded of Antigone. She sort of gives the ultimate act of love by not doing what she's told. Mm -hmm. And I love the juxtaposition of love and rules. Um, Love is something that's not constrained by rules or 
uh, pressures from outside. It's something that does something regardless of everything else. So, as haphazard and scatterbrained as that was, that was my moral lesson. I think my own moral lesson um, definitely comes from 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 the Oedipus Rex play, Oedipus the King. And I think it's ultimately that I need to always assume, never, never presume my innocence, but rather always be searching for where I made the mistake, no matter how far distant it was in the past, that to presume innocence is to be blind and to, to seek to seek to understand more fully that I am a flawed individual um, and sins of my past from in some, in sometimes very, very, very long in my past, um, those consequences persist to the present day. Even if I can't make the, draw the logical connection between something I did in my past and something that's happening to me in the present that um, to presume innocence when you're a, as flawed and mistake-ridden as a man as I am um, is the ultimate act of pride. And I think I can learn, I, I can learn a lot from Oedipus that I need to blind myself to see the truth, right? That I, I very often, I look at my, my particularly my, my own life and my past through a lens that is perhaps artificial and fake and I need to, to learn to see again so that I can not keep making the same mistakes over and over again. That's beautifully put. There's a sense in which what is true of ourselves is outside of the moment to moment narrative that we tell ourselves mm -hmm. and to escape it, we have to see anew, which might mean a kind of blindness. It, yeah, it is. It's it's blindness relative to now, right? <laughs> um, and I don't know what that means. I don't know where, like, that's what I, I think. That's what I really like about Jordan Peterson is that he gives you just a simple starting point to start to live the moral life, right? It's clean your damn room, <laughs> get your act together, bucko. Um, but I I think. You know, it is a matter of, it's, it is something as fundamental as that. I need to learn to re-see my room, my study, my, co my colleagues at work, mm. my work day. Like, I need to look with fresh eyes, and to do that, I just need to start putting things in, in their proper order. That's, that's well put. There. All right, well, so for a little bit of forecasting... For next time, so we are reading Plato's Symposium before we hit the Republic. The drunken revelry before the oh, long, long text. Indeed. I think, I think that the Symposium is, a, well, one, it's a little shorter. So it's a good little short introduction to Plato before we commit to reading 300 pages of the Republic. Um, 
but also I think it, it will give us a really good hermeneutic with which to read the Republic. Mm. Um, and that's, you've, I mean, you, we've both read the symposium before, so um, I think this will be my sixth or seventh time reading it cover to cover. So I'm pumped about that. I'm also excited that we are stepping from the realm of story into the realm of philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be cool. So, so we're reading the symposium and then we're going to hit up the Republic. And um, so that, I'm expecting that the symposium will be, you know, about a week from now, we'll podcast about it. And then the Republic will probably do in two segments, um, books one through five and books six through 10. Um, and then it'll be on to Aristotle. And then we get a brief reprise into sort of like philosophical literature with Lucretius. And then we're back right into the heart of Epic with Virgil. And I am so excited about that. I can't wait to read that book with you. I'm extremely excited to move forward. Yeah, we've, we've got some, some solid books coming up. I, so, I mean, I think more or less we've gotten the, all of our ancient authors are, are lined up. We've got our medieval authors lined up. I think we, we still have some work to do on determining what we're doing in the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm -hmm. um, definitely some Shakespeare and Milton. But um, Machiavelli. Well, yes, Machiavelli, of course, to start it off. Uh, so that'll be that'll be great. Um, I think we've got a lot to figure out in the modern period because there's there's so much that I want to read now that I've sort of shed off my my hatred for modern philosophy. I, I kind of that list has easily grown twice as long as it was. Um, so we might have to do some cutting and pasting there. Um, but ultimately, I, I'm excited to keep going on this journey. It's a, it's a long one. And, you know, we've only just started. You know, we've read. Well, we've only just started, but we, we have made it through four books. So kudos to us. And, and ultimately, you know, thank you for, for wanting to do this with me, Max. Yeah, thank you. And I, I also wanted to add that if anyone's listened this far, and you had some notes because I know some classics people um, are listening. If you wanted to drop those in the comments so we could address them next time on anything we've podcasted or podcast in the future, that would be much appreciated. That would be much appreciated. All right, with that, this, this has been Doyle and Max talking about Sophocles' Theban plays, and uh, we look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks, Thanks guys. <laughs> Bye.